February 1980, a man, a famous preacher... Sorry, Jordan, I'm getting a bit of feedback. Is there any chance... There we go. Um, February 1980, a famous Welsh preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones was on his deathbed. And he had been sick for an awful long time. And by this point, his illness was so bad, he'd lost his voice. And, uh, and as I said, he was on his deathbed. And he took some of the... He knew his church had been praying for him, that this man would get better, as you would. And he took some of the remaining energy that he had. He reached for a piece of paper and scrawled a note to his wife and to his children. And he said, don't pray for me to be healed. Don't hold me back from the glory. He said, don't pray for me because I know where I am about to go. I know what's going to happen to me when I die, is what he said. And of course, this kind of certainty of what will happen when I die is something that has eluded so many people throughout history and across the ages, hasn't it? It's perhaps the most, the biggest question of, that has been on the, man's of, the minds of mankind throughout all of, uh, all, of, all of history, really. What will happen when I die? And it's this certainty that Martin Lloyd-Jones embodied that we are going to look at, this of life after death that is going to be the focus of today's message. You might have thought that in Jesus' time, all of the Jewish people who had been God followers for generations and generations, you might have thought that all of them surely would believe in some kind of life after death. Maybe slightly different interpretations, but surely they all believe in it. Well, that's actually not the case. And today we are going to see Jesus in a a continuation of our series, but a a slightly different one where we've looked at individual encounters Jesus has had. But today we're seeing Jesus being confronted by a group of people, a group of people who want to undermine the very idea that there is life after death. And we are going to see Jesus then meet them and confront them with a stinging rebuke before then offering a stunning argument to show why there is indeed life after death to look forward to. And then we'll see him offer a glorious invitation. So if you're a note taker, today's message is called Eternal Truth. So you can stick that as your heading, underline it. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 22 in your Bible. So if you've got a Bible, it's always good to turn there. Matthew chapter 22 from verse 22. But if you don't, the words are going to appear on the screen behind me. You can read along there. The same day, so this is uh, the Sadducees coming to Jesus. It says, the same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers amongst us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second, and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, 
they were astonished at his teaching. We join this passage in a section of Matthew's gospel where Jesus is getting absolutely barraged by questions from two groups of people. He's been questioned by the Pharisees on the one hand and then a group called the Sadducees who we listen to hear about in this passage. And you might be familiar with the Pharisees. They're quite a common sparring partner of Jesus in the gospels. Uh, But you may be less familiar with the Sadducees who he's in conflict with here. The Sadducees are almost the complete opposite of the Pharisees. They are both powerful groups of Jewish leaders. So everybody knew about both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had power. They had influence over the Jewish people. But while the the Pharisees, their power had come through diligent study of God's word. They knew the scriptures. They uh, They were known and respected for how well they knew God's truth, how much they had gone deep into God's word. And then they had wowed people with the depth of knowledge they had, the wisdom that they had, their dazzling teaching. That was what the Pharisees were like. But the Sadducees, on the other hand, their power had come from them cozying up to the world powers of the day, cozying up to the Roman Empire who was overruling and oppressing the Jewish nation at the time. The people who were the Jewish enemies, the Sadducees had said, okay, we're going to partner with them. They had seen the power that was on offer by partnering with the, 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 the powers of the world of that day, and so they had joined with it. The Pharisees, if you like, on the one hand, are this kind of ultra-conservative, hardline in their theology. They had interpreted and then over-interpreted the scriptures to the point where they were then highly, or certainly came across as highly judgmental on the exact details of how you should live your life in order to please God. You may have met some Christians a little bit like that. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were very much just liberal and progressive in their theology. We can perhaps leave some of the truth and be a bit softer on the truth because there's this power on offer. They had been allured by that. And this went hand in hand with then the Sadducees' view of God. They didn't have a big view of God. They had long abandoned this idea that God was this all-powerful being, active and reigning over the universe. Their version of God was very much a stripped-down God. Yeah, he may have created the earth originally. He may have even formed us as a nation at the beginning, but he's not really a God that's involved in creation now. He's not really a God that's involved in our everyday life. It might sound crazy to us, but they had no real concept of God even really being a supernatural being. And we see all of this in the way that they're introduced in verse 23, where it says that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. This was a view widely attested to the Sadducees, that they believed that when you die, your body and your soul, they just perish. There's nothing. They had no belief in any kind of life after death whatsoever. Now that is helpful context when we then see the question that they come to Jesus with, because they come to him with a question about the resurrection of the dead. That tells you everything you need to know about the question. They are not coming genuinely seeking. They're not coming wanting to know and hungry for revelation from Jesus. They are coming with an agenda. In this series, we've seen people coming desperately to Jesus. I think every person we've looked at so far, they they want Jesus. They want everything that he might have for them. They they really want uh, what he has to offer. We saw Nicodemus a few weeks ago. 
coming genuinely hungry for truth. Another powerful, influential ruler of the Jewish nation, but genuinely asking questions. Jesus, I want to learn from you. We've seen other people, whether it's for truth or whether it's a touch of his power to be healed, just like, Jesus, I want whatever you have. I want to get hold of it and receive it from you. That is not how the Sadducees are coming here. And this question for us is initially a little bit confusing because it's talking about the Leverite, uh, an Old Testament law called Leverite marriage. And this is a law that we come across in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And we actually saw it in action in our Ruth series about this time last year, if you were around for it. And the idea of this law is this. And understanding the law isn't the most important thing. So I'll give a, a brief overview. If it passes you by a little bit, don't worry too much. But in a culture where the, the, the continuation of family lines and property going from generation to generation was super important, just for the functioning and flourishing of society, they had this law that if a man marries a woman, but before he has and they have an heir, a son, if he dies before that and he has a brother, then the brother would marry the widow, and then if they had a son he would legally be considered the son of the deceased man. So then the, all of the property of the man that passed away before he'd given birth to a son or had a son in his family gets passed on to him. All of the, the land, all of the, the name, all of those sorts of things. So again, as I said, society could function in that way. As I said, understanding the law itself is not too important. What is important to see here is then how the Sadducees stretch the idea of this to absolute absurdity. They invent this situation in verse 24 uh, to 28 where they speak of this man who has married a woman and before he has a son, he passes away. And so then his brother marries the widow. So far, so good. Well in keeping with the, the law that was set out. But before they then have a son, wouldn't you know it, that man passes away as well. Fortunately, there is a third brother in this family. Phew. Uh-oh, it's happened again. The third brother then passes away again before they have a child, before they have a son. I mean, they didn't hang around in these days before having kids. So this is a quick death after marriage each time. Then verse 26, we have brothers falling like dominoes. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth brothers fall in the space of about three words. What on earth are they eating? And then up steps the seventh brother. Could you imagine him on his wedding day? <laughs> He's seen his six older brothers almost immediately die after marrying this woman. <laughs> He's just there. I guess I do. <laughs> I sort of have to. And then lo and behold, he does indeed succumb to the same fate. He dies off. And then for good measure, the Sadducees decide in verse 27, oh, we'll just kill her off too. And so the woman dies. Seven brothers, one woman, all of them got married, all of them now dead. It would be tragic if it wasn't so absurd in its construction. And the question then the Sadducees say, who remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. They say to him, oh, Jesus, at this resurrection that you speak of, eight of these people, they're magically going to come back to life. They all married. Which of the brothers is going to be the husband of the wife. 
This is a question with one and only one angle as they come to Jesus. And that angle is to try and make Jesus look stupid. That's what they're trying to do. The commentator David Daub calls this a question of uh, vulgarity, a question in these days that would be asked of teachers not uh, in order to try and learn, but to try and ridicule a teacher in front of people. They're trying to press Jesus into a corner where Jesus kind of has to say, oh yeah, you know, when you put it like that, the idea of a life after death is pretty ridiculous in front of all of these people. As other people came before Jesus in humility, The Sadducees are trying to humiliate Jesus. And Jesus is the master of answering a question with a question. So often in the Gospels, when he's asked a question, he puts a question back to people to tie them in knots, to silence them. We see it when he's asked about healing on the Sabbath. We see it when he's asked about John the Baptist and whether he came from God or not. So it's significant here. Jesus doesn't answer with a question. He's not entertaining it. Here, Jesus just slams them. He just says to them, verse 29, you are wrong. In Greek, this is strong. Stronger even than it comes across here. Jesus is just smacking them. Genuinely, that is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you are just wrong. To begin with in his answer, he is not even dignifying this with a response. They're asking a question of which. Which of these options is is it, Jesus? And he just says, no. You are in the wrong. Your question is wrong. Your premise is wrong. Your posture is wrong. Your demeanor is wrong. Your heart is wrong as you are coming to me with that question. This is forthright from Jesus. Jesus is not afraid to call out error. He is not afraid to say, that is wrong. He's not saying here, well, your interpretation, you know, it's a little bit different to mine. Or, you know, some scholars would say, he's just saying, no, that is flat out wrong. It's bad theology mixed with bad motivation, you're wrong. This is in the same series we have seen, this same Jesus coming in compassion and love and kindness, welcoming all. But this is the same Jesus, and he stands for truth. He is not afraid to confront and rebuke when truth is at stake. He is not soft on truth. He is not soft on right versus wrong. To a people who are compromising on the truth knowingly with world powers. People who are interpreting scripture and they know it. They're interpreting it in a way that is allowing them to pursue their own life ambitions, their own life goals, what they want. Jesus looks that square in the eye and says, no, you are wrong. It should get us to pause and think. Because we might not outwardly and outright try and humiliate and ridicule Jesus. But where are we tempted to also go soft on the truth, perhaps? Perhaps interpret scripture in such a way that might suit us. Maybe it wouldn't be a grab for power like it is with the Sadducees, but perhaps interpreting truth in such a way where we think, oh, maybe I still will be able to be sexually fulfilled, so I'll just sort of see things in this way. 
Or maybe I don't have to be quite as generous with my money as it might seem, uh, seem to be, because perhaps I can just spin it like this. Or maybe I will pursue a life of comfort above all other things. Maybe that's okay. We should be considering, is there anything in our lives that Jesus might confront in this similar way? This seems to me a great place for Jesus to walk away. He has dunked on the Sadducees. He said, you are wrong. It's a great kind of mic drop moment and then just wave goodbye to them, see you later. But where there is error, Jesus then always wants to lead into truth. And so then instead of answering this absurd question that they had come to him with, he then delivers a stunning argument to undermine their very premise. He continues in verse 29. He says, you are wrong because... You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They had closed their eyes to the truth, and so then as a result, they had completely underestimated the power of God at work and what he could do. And so what Jesus does is he takes them to the truth. Verse 31, he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, there is a number of passages that Jesus could have taken the Sadducees to to speak resurrection in the Old Testament. He could have gone to Job, could have gone to Daniel, could have gone to Isaiah, but he doesn't. Instead, he turns to a reference in the book of Exodus, A reference that to us, I think when we first read it, doesn't necessarily scream, oh, eternal life is now proved, case closed, all done. But Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. You see, with the Sadducees, the way that they had played fast and loose with the truth of Scripture is they had basically said, look, we believe none of it apart from the first five books of the Bible that Moses has written, the Pentateuch. He's like, Moses is our guy. We'll believe anything he's written. We're not interested in anything else. They'd even named Moses uh, earlier in, in verse 24. He said, Moses had said this. And what Jesus is doing here is basically saying, you want to talk about Moses? Great. Let's talk about Moses. Let's, let me show you how even your guy, Moses, we read his writing, we can see he leads us straight to eternal life and the resurrection. And so he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And this quote is from when Moses first meets God at the burning bush. His first encounter with God. And this is how God introduces himself to Moses. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. This is an argument from Jesus so beautiful and subtle and elegant that it can actually be very easy for us to miss. Let's just have a look at it. It hangs on just a couple of words. First he says, first God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now at this point, he's talking to Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they have been dead for hundreds of years. And so we would expect, as God turns up to introduce himself to Moses, he'd say, oh, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says, I am their God. 
Him being the God of these men is not something that has slipped into the past tense. Despite the fact that their bones have been buried in the ground for centuries, he says, I am the God of these men. This is language of current. This is language of ongoing. It's the language of present tense. I am their God. And it's the language of relationship. Then if you notice that in the text, I am the God of. Just a subtle little word, so easy to miss. I am the God of Abraham. For those of us that have maybe read our Bibles a little bit, familiar with passages, we think that's just like, we hear that, it's just like water off a duck's back, we just maybe don't pay attention to it. It's just like, that's just a Bible phrase, right? I wonder if you've thought, what does that actually mean? What does it mean for God to reveal himself of God of Abraham? He's saying he belongs to Abraham. We use this kind of language ourselves, this language of belonging, this almost language of possession of one another in the English language today. Whenever I hear an interview by one of Manchester's favorite sons, Noel Gallagher, um, I don't listen to him often, but when I have, and whenever he's been talking about his younger brother, Liam Gallagher, always refers to him as our kid. Our kid. It's like that language of familial bond, of like it's slightly patronizing, but also pretty affectionate because we share a bond. You might hear me talking of Hannah as my Hannah. If you, don't know, if you don't know me, you don't know us, you'd probably surmise that's probably Duncan's wife. You'd be correct. Equally, if I was to start referring to someone I'd just welcomed for the very first time on a Sunday and started to refer to them as my Linda or my Barry, I think all of us in this room would agree I would have some boundary issues that would need addressing. This language of possessive pronouns, of saying you are mine or our kid, these are only used, we only use them in the most deep and close and secure relationships that we have. Relationships that involve a voluntary self-giving of ourselves to one another. Where we're able to say that person is mine because we know they have given themselves to us. They have chosen to enter into a relationship with us so deeply that we're able to to claim something of them. And hopefully that's then reciprocated as well. That is the language God is using here. Language of deep, self-giving relationship. And so deeply has God given of himself in this relationship. So invested is he that he's not saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they belong to me, which would be one thing. But he is identifying himself as a God who belongs to them. I have given myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A relationship that continues to endure. He's still speaking to Moses at this point, as he has through the book of her whole book of Genesis. Now, long after they have passed away in an earthly sense, as being ones in relationship with him. And this is how he then introduces himself to Moses. First encounters, like this is the one thing I want you to know about me right out of the gate. This is who I am as a God. I am a God of covenant relationship. I am a God of steadfast, enduring relationship that will never fail and will go on and on and on and on. A bond, a bond so tight that we can use this kind of language with one another. We can talk about each other as 
I belong to you. You are my God. That's exactly what God is looking to form with Moses and his people. Just three chapters later on in Exodus chapter 6, he forms a promise with them full of these kind of words. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. This is what Jesus is laying before the Sadducees. Notice he's not just giving them a bunch of proof texts, like here, 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 bang, 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 bash you over the head, I'm going to prove to you that the resurrection is real. He's not leading them to a prophecy that might then be open to debate and interpretation and lead to a bit of a tense argument between them. He just wants to show them this is how God speaks of himself. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself. To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, now to Moses, I am the God of relationship. Relationships that endure, even beyond the grave. As long-lasting and as eternal as he is. An argument incredible in its elegance and its simplicity, which Jesus then sums up at the end of verse 32, where he says, God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. So he can't be the God of the dead. He can't belong to the dead. The dead can't possess anything. They can't own anything. We know that to be true. So if he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if he belongs to them, then they must be among the living. They must continue to be in deep fellowship with him. Jesus is not just introducing or not just interested in demonstrating before them the idea of eternal life, he wants them to see that there is eternal relationship. From the very beginning, this is what he was doing. This is what he was showing. This is what he continues to show to us today, that God gives himself to us to the extent where we can say he belongs to us and we belong to him, that he is our God. We can lay a claim on him and call him ours because he has given us himself to us. And when we are in this relationship, and only when we are in this relationship, where we say he belongs to us, we belong to him, then life flows. Eternal life flows. He pours into us a life so full, a life so deep, a life so rich that we never stop living. But we go on with him forevermore. You know, this year will be 4,188 years, roughly, since Abraham was born. Give or take. Do you know, 4,188 years on, still going strong with his father in heaven, in the heavenly realm, in perfect relationship with him, because he's in this relationship and God is just pouring into him to exist forever and ever and ever. This relationship that we have with God is the only source of life. It's the only place that we can find where life comes from, life that endures, the trueness, the fullness, the abundance of life. So if we want to know, well, what what does life really look like? If we want to feel more alive, there is nowhere else we can go. 
nowhere else that we will find life. It's only in this relationship with God, by choosing to grow our relationship with him, by investing in relationship with him, by giving our time to devote it, being devoted to knowing him, that is where we will discover and find life. It's so easy for us to miss, just as the Sadducees do here. In verse 29, we read that they underestimate the power of God. They underestimate just what he is able to do. It's clear from the way that they talk that their concept of what an eternal life or a resurrection might look like is far too small. Their premise is this. In the resurrection, there will be marriage. These eight people, they're going to get raised to to life. And as they do, there is going to be a right old relational head-scratcher to be worked out. We've got to solve this problem. This is going to be difficult. One brother's going to get to marry... The rest are going to miss out. Their premise is, well, you know, some people are going to be satisfied in the resurrection. Others will probably be a little bit disappointed in some way. Their premise is the resurrection is going to be pretty similar to this world. There will be great joy, but the other times, you know, where we've got to learn to live with a bit of compromise, perhaps just wait, be patient for the next thing to come along. That's how they're talking of and thinking of the resurrection. And what Jesus wants them to see is you have absolutely no idea. You are underestimating the power of God. You are totally underestimating the complete and total transformation that you are going to go under, that the whole of creation is going to undergo. In the resurrection, God is not just tweaking around the edges, making a few improvements. As Jesus says in verse 30, he says, you are going to be like the angels. Now, he's not saying we're going to sprout wings. What he is saying, he's not even saying you're going to be completely different, transformed into different beings. Abraham still be Abraham. Moses still be Moses. You will still be you. But he is saying he is going to completely remake you into a totally different, uh, into a totally different level of who you are. So that like the angels you are able to enter right into the fullness of his presence, right into being with God in relationship with him. What Jesus is saying here is the last thing I want you to think is that the resurrection is going to be like this, but a little bit better. Oh, just faster Wi-Fi. Fewer arguments on Facebook, maybe. Bit less rain. Resurrection is going to be great. Jesus is saying, no, forget that. The resurrection will be nothing like that. It's going to be unlike anything you could even begin to dream of or comprehend and get your minds around. You are going to see God face to face, no longer veiled, no longer in part, no longer just a little glimpse of him. You are going to see the fullness of God and you are going to enter into total and complete relationship with him. This relationship that has begun here on earth that you've had a little taste of and you've known feeding life into you is going to be enjoyed to the fullness of what it is meant to be by you and by him. And finally, you will be alive. You'll be whole and you'll be complete. You'll be satisfied, satisfied forevermore. 
You know, when we read in verse 30, we read, we're not going to get married in heaven. It can sound like a bit of a downgrade. Me and my wife, just this last week, we celebrated 10 years of wedding, of, sorry, of, of marriage. Um, thank you very much. And uh, it's nothing compared to eternity. And we, I've enjoyed marriage. And I think, I don't want to lose that. That's intuitively what I think. We can think no marriage, no sex, no romance. Some of us might be thinking no fun in heaven. But far from the abolition of marriage, heaven is actually the fulfillment of marriage. Marriage is the language of the resurrection that we read about and the end of history, the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapters 19 and 21, we read that we, us, the church, we will be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, ready for the marriage of the Lamb. We will come made ready, completely transformed into completely different natures of our very self, and we will come with all of the joy and the anticipation and the expectation and the excitement of a bride on her wedding day as we come to be joined in union with the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It's not the end of marriage. It's the great marriage, the great joining. Because with him and in him, we will know the most intense love and intimacy and fulfillment of our relational desires, all met at once, then stretching out forevermore. Ours to enjoy for eternity. It will be the highlight, the absolute pinnacle of relational fulfillment. It's marriage beyond marriage, love beyond love, intimacy beyond intimacy. It's everything that we long for, and it is where we are going. And when we know this is where we're going, when we know this is what we have to look forward to, this is our forever future, it really does change how we live today. As uh, St. Teresa of Avila put it 500 years ago, she said this, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Or to put it slightly differently, in the words of the Apostle Paul, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we have the band. The Sadducees didn't see this. Their eyes were closed. They refused to let themselves see the truth, and so they underestimated the power of God. They underestimated what he could do and what he was laying up in store for them. Like the Sadducees, we are invited to have our eyes opened. We're invited to see this, to believe it, to know that it is true and to not miss out. We're invited to fill our vision and fill our gaze with this to know this is where I'm going, that the eternal weight of glory will one day be mine. Because then it transforms everything else into just light and momentary. Even the biggest challenges are just mere afflictions on the way to glory. Life after death, it's not only real, but it is going to be joy beyond the limits of anything we can imagine. 
So I'd like to invite you to stand. What we're going to do now is we're going to sing to, if you like, we're going to fill our minds with the things of eternity as we sing. And then we're going to finish by sharing communion. We're going to fill our bellies with the things of eternity. We are going to eat the truth of the resurrection. We're going to eat the truth of where we are going. So as we sing this song, can I invite you, um, the welcome team are just... uh, uncling filming the bread, to go and get a piece of bread, to go and get um, some grape juice that's in the cups. Get one of those as we sing this next song, and then I'll be back after we've sung it to lead us in sharing that together as we look ahead to the things of eternity. So uh, the band will sing, and then uh, go go and get the bits.